0: I'm Kyra Kellowan, an international educator with experience of careers and college counselling in schools and universities across four countries. You're listening to The Piloted Podcast, a show about innovation in education for teachers, parents and students. We give the name pilot to something that is being trialled for the first time, a new process, a practice run or a test. All of the educators I meet on this podcast are doing just that. In their own way, they are trailblazing and making changes that could affect the lives of students and educators across the globe. The podcast is for you if you're a parent or a teacher frustrated with current systems and interested in best practices from education that's just different from the norm. Or maybe you're a student who would like to hear from others who've been through unusual or experimental models. This episode took me to the newest member of the Green School, the second school of a growing group guided by sustainable practices whose first site is in Bali. Private, environmentally conscious school groups, such as Green School International, are growing fast. Green School New Zealand opened on the second week of February, and there are two more planned to open in 2021, in South Africa and Mexico. An average day at these schools could include developing a renewable energy system or learning water safety skills while surfing. Traditional subjects are then blended with enterprise skills and environmental studies. Green School New Zealand has futuristic-looking new teaching pods, or Whackers, sitting on the hilltop of an idyllic 120-acre site on the west coast of the North Island, near Taranaki. It was here in a cafe converted from an old barn, where I first met Chris Edwards, the CEO, and the principal, Stuart McAlpin. This was during week two of the school being open, so you can still hear some occasional building work behind us during the recording. I started out by asking Chris and Stuart how they'd found themselves here after several years of working together at the United World College in Singapore. And why had they chosen this particular kind of project to get stuck into?
1: I'm Chris Edwards, CEO of Green School New Zealand. I'm Stuart McAlpine, uh, Principal of Green School New Zealand.
0: Thanks for the introduction. Thanks for welcoming us onto this beautiful, beautiful campus, which we can see is developing at a rate of knots. Tell us a little bit, if you don't mind in conversation, just what brought you to Green School and how, how your kind of professional journeys brought you both here.
2: So my professional journey should not have brought me here. I had no intentions of coming here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I gave my notice some 14 months in advance to what was the biggest international school in the world, UWC, and I fully intended to go back to the UK I'm to ramp things down a little bit. I'm doing something perhaps a little less onerous. My misfortune was to meet Michael and Rachel Perrett, the founders of Green School New Zealand, who said, don't go back to the UK, come and have a look at this field and use your imagination. So last March I came, I had a look at this field in beautiful Taranaki, New Zealand. I used my imagination as best I could while Mike spoke to me and his vision was so compelling and the mission so urgent that I did a 180 degrees. And I decided to come to New Zealand to help start Green School in New Zealand.
0: Wow. So that was your family as well, coming from Singapore.
2: There is only myself here at the moment. My wife is travelling regularly from the UK. But yet it was a huge shift in my thinking and in my travel
1: plans.
0: And Stuart, where did your journey enter? I
1: think I was also at the United World College, um, where Chris was. And I'd wanted to work at the United World Colleges for pretty much most of my life. Like at least all of my adult life. So in many ways I could have stayed there forever. That was one option of just like, this is really great. And we're done now, that's it, just yeah. enjoy it. I think the chance to try to do something that feels meaningful with your life is something I think that you have obviously gives to both learners and teachers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was a really strong pull for me. And I think the thing was two things, one, I think the joy of innovating and the joy of creating something was an enormously strong lure to come here with the same kind of missions around sustainability and creating a slightly better world than the one you find. But the chance to innovate was hugely appealing in in a very, with an extremely idealistic team. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think that the Green School has, as quite a unique quality, is an absolute and genuine commitment to building learning with learners and for them not offering programs that they have to fit into mm-hmm. and i think many of the problems around the world you see with well-being or stress or anxiety or even just lack of a sense of connection in learners is because they're being offered pre-packaged programs mm-hmm. and that's just not how the world works as said, you go into a shoe shop people don't offer you as many size five shoes as you wish and if your feet are a different size bad luck They offer you a whole range of things, or maybe even you can create your own shoes. And I think we want to be that kind of school where learners come and they can create their own learning journeys. And that's hugely appealing. Mm
0: -hmm. How does it feel to be kind of within the family, as it were, of Green School?
2: So we were connected. We were cousins. So United World College in Singapore actually sent people to Green School Bali, which has now been in existence for 10 years. So I knew of Green School Mm -hmm. and I didn't actually visit um, until a year ago. There are points of congruence between the two missions, Absolutely. Green School and um, United World College. I'd love to think going forward, actually, that we could um, amplify those. Mm. I was familiar, but nothing prepared me for my first visit to Bali. Um, you know, talk about experiential education. Um, that was in common parlance, a mind-blowing moment. And that made the vision in New Zealand all the more compelling. Once I'd actually seen Bali in action, I'd seen proof of concept. I thought, actually, no, this ideal is manifest on the ground. So yeah, a little familiarity. I'm on the steepest learning curve probably of my life at the moment, which is a great privilege when you're 55 years old, normally you're going the other way. (laughs) But yeah, we we owe a lot to Bali. And I think that needs to be said. You know, that Green School Bali, Green School New Zealand would not be here.
0: And there's plans to extend further, as I understand. So this might be school number two. I've seen plans for something in Mexico, something in uh, South America.
2: Correct. So three and four are all but ready to go. I'd be very surprised if we did not have four green schools by the end of next year. And then there are many more in the pipeline. It's probably beholden upon me not to say too much at this stage, but yes, we expect to see more green schools around the world.
0: And so um, your professional journeys then, how long were you both at UWC and where were you before that to to kind of understand a little bit about your own teaching and learning practice before you joined a less traditional model?
1: So I was there for eight and a half years. And before that, as in the UK, but I suppose the important thing about the UK is I visited Atlantic College when I was quite young mm-hmm. and thought, right, I want to work there. I'd applied to three United World Colleges and just not got jobs there. And the jobs that <laughs> I I think I'd applied to Italy at least once. Uh-huh. I'd applied to Lipo Chung. They just never wrote back. <laughs> um, and At least one other. Probably They're missing Pearson. out now. They're missing but, um, out now. And. <laughs> I think one of the jobs I applied for while applying for the United World Colleges was 7 because it was yeah. an all IB school in the UK and had a very good reputation. And I applied there just as a backup option to applying to UWCs, but I got that job. And so I'd worked there and lived in the boarding house there with very similar sort of like 60 students. They were boys from in the international house and like 57 nationalities of 60 boys, you know, very diverse groups coming mm-hmm. together for two years to study the IB boarding. Okay. So that was, the journey had always been towards UWCs, and I'd been reading Alec Peterson and reading, you know, Schools Beyond Frontiers. Yeah. So that was very much all part of a continuous journey towards a UWC somewhere.
0: Were you always looking at something that would be really challenging in terms of your Set up in the classroom, or your interaction with the students being very different, because obviously, are there any plans to make this into a boarding school?
1: No, not going. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's been a lot of consistency in my life around that. I think so. In terms of growing up, I went. uh, My dad was head of Bedale School, which is again like set up as a progressive school as an alternative to the mainstream Mm -hmm. with a school farm with no uniform, with all teachers by first names, with an enormous amount of freedom, in lots of different ways, but an enormous amount of freedom in the countryside. Yeah. Um, deliberately. So I think I've grown up with that ideal. Yeah. I love, as Chris knows, I love sort of Wordsworth poetry, because that romantic movement. Yeah. And, you know, they took their children down to the Southwest of England to get them away from the city to grow up with nature, you know, like, so that whole sort of 18th century thing and that yeah. romantic thing.
0: Yeah the enlightenment of schools
1: yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and it's the romantic side of the enlightenment if the enlightenment's all reason it's that slight counter back towards nature mm-hmm. um that i've always loved and has always been really important to me and nature poetry and Seamus Heaney and Ted Hughes
0: so, what poetry are you going to be teaching here in our in our setting? What comes to mind next to the river?
1: <laughs> Chris was already. We were having a good first. <laughs> because you're an English graduate, South. right, we,
0: Chris? Yeah, we
2: sit next to each other. Chris you, starts a poem. You, like like you, rest rest you really don't want to go down this road too long <laughs> in this interview. Um, and what poetry? What history do you teach? I think it's very important to acknowledge at this stage that we're in New Zealand, so we have a local to global mindset. So. We're going to be doing a lot in Te Reo, mm. the language of the indigenous people, the Māori. Mm-hmm. There are a million and one poems I shall learn sat by that river myself. I won't necessarily be sharing them um, with the students because I think it's important that we go beyond English literature from the word go, mm, which yeah. we will do. Yeah, but yeah, if you want to do another podcast for 10 hours, I'd happily talk to you about what poetry <laughs> yeah. I'd love to read and teach I'm by the river. Um, down. But just in terms of you know, my version of Stuart's story very briefly... My mum and dad grew up in the centre of Liverpool in what is, I think, still proudly one of Britain's temporous postcodes. Sent all six of their children to university because of enormous sacrifice on their part. So my passion for education is born to some extent out of the sacrifices they made. You don't have to love there. It's nothing more important. You can give your child an education. And I've carried that. But having said, when my parents began, I went through a number of quite well-known schools in the UK. And I would say that not a single experience has has been negative. Each one has enriched me, Mm. even though some are probably 180 degrees, again, away from where I am sitting, talking to you now. But they've all played their part. They ultimately led to being head of a large school in the UK for 10 years, Bromsgrove, I think it's 2,000 students now. Wow. 40, 50 nationalities. Mm
0: -hmm. Then
2: UWC, 5,500, 100 nationalities. To a small hay barn in rural New Zealand. Yeah. Um, where we just have 50 students at the moment. But little has changed in terms of my passion for opening minds as much as one possibly can. And little has changed my passion for a a children-centered education, which I think ultimately we all struggle in vain to find because eventually, the system gets to you all. Mm -hmm. So may this be the first school I've worked at where the system doesn't get to anybody, let's see.
0: Right. So, okay, that takes me on to a couple of questions that sort of stem off. So one is obviously about the families that you've attracted so far. And I know you're at 46 students at the moment, you intend to grow by 10 times that in the next Mm -hmm. coming years. So um, what are the families like you've chosen Green School here and, and kind of, you know, where do you fit at the moment into this community that you're in?
2: Yeah. So very interesting. The demographic at the moment is a mixture of people who have literally moved continents to come here. Um, you could count those on the fingers of two hands at mm. the moment mm. to people who literally live on this road, on Koru Road. So what we aspire to have is a mixture of people who are here on free places, scholarships. Okay. Um, so they will all live within half an hour's drive of the school. That's the aspiration and then we will continue to have people who will uproot their families to come to rural New Zealand in order to come to green school. Um, we're obviously limited at the moment as you've seen for yourself we only have technically one stroke two classrooms in operation so that's why we started with a very small number. By the end of the year we hope to be over 100
0: okay.
2: um, and I would expect then over 20% of the families to be international and that figure will rise.
0: So the international students will also subsidise the local scholarship Uh, students or will your scholarships be available to anybody worldwide
2: well well, at the moment um, you have to bear in mind we're in week two as i answer this question so watch this space (laughs) this and this answer could morph into something else pretty quickly and if somebody leaves us a large sum of money then forget (laughs) everything i'm about to say at the moment we're going to set up a scholarship fund for local children okay But obviously, if somebody came forward and thought Green School was an inspirational idea and said, I'd love whatever it might be, 10 people from my country to come here, Mm -hmm. then of course we'd be receptive to that. But we're going to start local, local to global.
0: The impact that you have within the community is obviously two two ways. What has been the impact of the community on you in terms of, you know, the the local iwi, the buy-in from the, the, you know, presumably this site had to be blessed, presumably Mm. you had to have um, a real engagement with local tribes. So how has that manifested itself and what's your kind of reception been like here, I suppose?
2: So the first thing, it's been a massive, massive re-education for me. I mean, I'm from a generation who was told that Captain Cook discovered New Zealand. You know, we all know the rest. And of course, now that I'm here, I am again learning so much, my my brain can hardly hold it, you know, let alone my heart. So we've had to reach out to the local iwi, which is the wider um, community, and the hapu, the local communities. Mm -hmm. Each area has its own marae. We have had a blessing. We've had a traditional blessing. We've had a porphyry, the welcoming ceremony, both conducted in te reo We've had extensive communication and incredible support um, from the local community, the local Maori community. I spent time at Parihaka just down the road, which was the place of passive resistance, which I'd never even heard of mm-hmm. till I came here. I was
0: reading about it as I was yeah. traveling through. Yeah. I mean, it's
2: me shame. Gandhi took stuff from Parihaka when the crown forces went in and the children... Um, did their equivalent of putting flowers in the guns. Yeah. Um, so, you know, remarkable stories I'm learning all the time. This land is very special, and it's not just because of the indigenous Maori community, but actually um, there's, there used to be a small monastery here, which you believe as well. It was a burial site for the monastery. So an awful lot has happened on this land. And I did say at our opening ceremony that, above all else, we have to respect those who have lived here, those who do live here. And we have to earn our own place in that story and we we have to do that respectfully. So it's it's been a fascinating journey, it really yeah. has.
0: Um, we were in the local cafe just down the road just for lunch before we came up and sort of said, you know, have you heard about Green School? Um, and one of the comments was, yes, yeah, it's, it's not cheap. What's that kind of um, reception been like from the average community member who kind of thinks, right, why is the school here? What is its mission? How does it affect us? Um, because I think, you know, the need to give scholarships to local students is an amazing thing and I think you will attract um, attention. How are you making sure, How what's the work being done to ensure that attention is the right kind of attention?
2: My first encounter with the local response was the day I landed. I was trying to stay awake, you know, I had the usual jet lag and I decided to get my hair cut and the hairdresser was incredibly supportive and that surprised me because most people only know Green School as a fee-paying school. Yes. Um, the scholarship program, obviously, we're in our second week. You know, We've we yet to get the message out there yeah. extensively. But she was incredibly supportive. Um, I think on the one extreme, we've got um, tall poppy syndrome from some people. It's just there to be attacked. You know, The, the founders have, have done well for themselves financially in life. Um, so let's just bash it as much as we can. Some people drive to school. If you're moving continents to get here, you must have flown. What a bunch of hypocrites you are, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and and that's fine. You'd expect all that. I, I simply flip it around and say, OK, so if they hadn't done it, the world would be a better place, would it? Mm-hmm. If Green School didn't exist, we'd all be happier and better. Of, of course we wouldn't. So I think the imperative is to get as much socioeconomic diversity into the school as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. You will never be able to counter all the naysayers and finger pointers. Of course you won't. And sometimes they've got good points. You know, I think hypocrisy is too strong a word. Mm-hmm. But there are things we will always have to work on to get better. But yeah, socio-economic diversity for me is a sine qua non for green schools around the world. It will take years to get to where I'd like them to get, but you know, we've got to put one foot forward and begin the journey and, and that's what we're doing now.
0: So what's your vision then eventually? Let's say we're in 2030, yeah. 2040, Taranaki has been lauded as a place of impact in terms of its biodiversity, in terms of its plans for regeneration, investment in green technology. So what would you like to see green school flying the flag Where would you like to see? Well,
2: first of all, I'd like to see a scholarship fund equivalent to Harvard University, something like that, so we could make sure that everybody could access a green school education. I'd love to see many more green schools around the world. You know, I want to see it as the vanguard of the new normal. But I would like to see families who are coming to Taranaki to be contributing creatively, entrepreneurially to the green community locally. Um, We're already seeing that, by the way. That's already happening in week two, would you believe? but I'd love for the world to look at Taranaki in 10 years and just say, crikey, mm-hmm. look what's happened there.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: as I said, let this be the new normal, not some wacky
1: outlier.
0: Yeah. That Are you intending to train teachers or host you know, programs on site for, for local schools as well? Would that be something that's in the vision?
1: Very much so. And not even necessarily just local. But I think if we can become a hub for this kind of learning both child-centered and learning around sustainability I think there's a huge need for that around the world there's a lot that we could do that could strengthen that so yeah so I imagine that would very much be part of our future sort of positive influence and I would say in reference to the earlier question about you know sort of impact and is it a good thing or a bad thing that we're here you know so as Chris said you have the choice between not here or here 35,000 native species already planted on this land. That's really good for the insect life. That's really good for the bird life. Mm-hmm. That's really good for the nearby ecosystems that can use this either as bridging or nesting or pest control on the site to try and get rid of invasive species. So even if we looked at like just the natural, world, it's better that we're here. Yeah. The pollution and the runoff from this land is stopped. We no longer have to pay for seepage into the river because the site is now clean. And if you look at like, you know, the builder here, Heine, saying him reducing waste down to 3%, and that's becoming a model for the building trade here in Taranaki, that also kind of raises the bar. So I'd say already there are loads of areas where it's better that we're here and we're contributing, like everyone needs to contribute a small bit to us all trying to survive as a species, you know, in terms of well-being and sustainability, It's not a competition and it's not a zero-sum game. If we all try hard, we can all live really well and beautifully on this planet. (laughs) The learners who are here right now, regardless of where they're from, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: thriving and being happy, again, it's not a zero-sum game. If human beings are happy and we're doing great work to help children thrive, that's good for everybody. We all benefit if we've got happy people in the world.
0: Well, obviously having happy children is, is paramount. So let's go back, I know we're in week two, your teaching and learning then, what is the foundation of you know, life for students at, at Green School? What would what you like them to walk out of here knowing how to do?
1: So I think, I think the first thing would be if foundation implies build the house
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a sort of quite mechanical square way, <laughs> then swapping the metaphor over to like, we use the unfurling fern as an image of thriving and of learning. So I think for a start of it would be like, how are you helping children to sort of unfurl and grow? And I think part of that is not having rigidity. Like Chris says, you know, the system will get you, like the pressure to bureaucratize things and lock them up in rigid lines is very strong. We're trying to create something where there's a very broad map of learning and possibilities and that the journeys are your journey to a certain extent, you know, as much as we can. The way that we do that, I think, is trying to get a really good spread and balance across. So I think we have what we call the Kuru curriculum, which is the sort of well-being curriculum, but well-being taken in terms of both the spiritual and the emotional and the physical and the mental, and a, a really sort of filled out notion of what it means to be well. And then we've got proficiencies, because... To use teacher speak. Yeah, yeah please do, because <laughs> um, I
0: think we'll have teachers
1: listening Okay, <laughs> so to use teacher speak, <laughs> if you think about reading, literacy and numeracy are symbolic languages. They are extremely useful, and you, because they are a skill, essentially, they're a communicative skill or an interpretive skill, they thrive on sort of building fluency and practice, which does mean they need practice. Mm-hmm. So we have the proficiencies, so for numeracy, literacy, and today Maori, which we want all learning to feel real Mm -hmm. so that means about relationships about experiences about being action orientated and about local to global contexts but we do want to build fluency which is quite a traditional goal but that's because it's quite a useful thing to have
0: absolutely and then
1: (laughs) next over to that we have voyages which would be sort of conceptual learning around sort of four voyages through the year for our four terms which are broadly seasonal and broadly aligned to sort of sustainability goals, like sustainable development goals or points of the compass in the compass model. And so we've got those and we co-construct those with learners and we're using strategies similar to that, again, teacher speak, similar to the hackathon methods we used for Sky School, where you co-construct learning with groups of learners. So those are the voyages. And then we've also got hikoi, which are kind of your pushed out individual journey, hikoi meaning you know, to march, to walk purposefully. And that's both experiential learning, but also student driven passion projects, as it were, you know, like I want to become a professional photographer right. or like I want to go and build a hydro plant up that river and, you know, whatever it is.
0: When would they start? At what age would they, would they begin? On All the way through, person. but it's
1: just the amount of scaffolding the teacher does for that might vary. So today everyone's out in the sea yeah learning to be safe in the surf because that gives them a strong basis for the next time they say i want to go and sail or i want to go and take a surfboard up Mm -hmm. we're kind of just building in a base there so they've got some of that safety and competencies around okay you're good to be in the ocean um so that's today starting yeah yeah. i think that broad framework of koru proficiencies voyages hikoi means i think we can get the best of all possible worlds
0: The parents who you're looking to attract or in the next phases, what kind of discussion, I suppose, will you need to have in order to relay those goals in a way that is meaningful within systems that exist in terms of outcomes and students going on to further studies, Mm. etc. What has the discussion been like?
2: So I, I... Find myself reversing conversations quite a lot, mm. and I find myself describing what we're doing as ruthlessly relevant. Because again, you can imagine, you know, one extreme or an essay saying, "Oh, I don't know, they hug trees all day, or whatever they might do." They put a bandana on and <laughs> sing kumbaya around the fire. In fact, when you look at what's going to be required later on in the 21st century, and I'm not just talking about climate change; I'm talking about skills that are appropriate in other areas. Then I think the green screen curriculum is as relevant as as one can possibly imagine, because the skills, the ethical dispositions that we hope to instill, or sorry, that's the wrong word, actually, it's not instill, I'll take that back, that we hope to nurture and to foster and allow to flourish in young people. This is what is going to be required in the future. And there are lots of schools doing this very well. But our particular approach here at Green School, I think, is towards the radical end. Mm -hmm. But it's actually towards the radical end of relevance. Mm -hmm. And I would say to people, point to that which is not relevant here and I can't find anything. So I feel very strongly about this. I go back to this idea of us being the vanguard of the new normal. I'd love to think there's a point, sorry, a point in future time where multiple schools are taking a green school approach even if they're not in and of themselves green schools
0: in terms of technology and and obviously here we are on on what will be a working farm what will be your availability i suppose of 21st century technologies to students who maybe do have an interest in in vr Mm. and ar you were telling me earlier that you Mm. have an incredibly fast broadband connection what else can you visualize being um on the kind of list
2: well i make a clear distinction here um in terms of walking around all day looking at a screen not on this is about human relationships so you leave your phone at the door and, and you deal with people here. In terms of bringing your own machine to lessons for research, etc. only in senior high school. We have Chromebooks for younger students, um, but they will always be at teacher's discretion, teacher directed with the Chromebooks. So screens by and large during the day, only when necessary, and you certainly can't have your phone. That said, once we get the innovation center set up and it's not ready yet, the innovations, then we want to do what Barley do, which is to have cutting edge technology absolutely cutting edge technology. So those people who want to engage in passion projects can do so Mm -hmm. with the kind of equipment they would be using as adults. But we don't want that wrecking human interactions during the day. You go there for a purpose, you leave, then you deal with human beings face to face afterwards. So that's my super pragmatic answer to that question. (laughs) Stuart
1: might have a more visionary response, I don't know. Screens can be used as a substitute for relationships or to replace the need to sort of connect in classrooms or to manage students in a very sort of dreary Orwellian kind of way. And that's not us. And that's not why you'd pick such a beautiful place. So some people do then assume, oh, so it's no tech then? And the answer is exactly what Chris said. No, no. Spikes of intensely creative use of tech would be great. And I think we have a lot of entrepreneurs in our Community, mm-hmm. not least our founders, but actually many, and so does Bali. And I think there is a genuine interest in pushing boundaries, making businesses, making social enterprises, seeing what's achievable, seeing what you can do that others haven't had the visionary sort of insight to do. Mm. And I think when I think of where we might go with tech, my mind goes towards that.
0: So I'm getting two things. One one overall feeling I have is that you want children to actually have a childhood that they enjoy, Mm. that is outside in nature, that is um, linking them to to feeling as though they are really part of their environment. Mm. But then the second thing is being able to prepare students for that 21st century world of work they will be able to have access to the things that they understand to be relevant, or needed, necessary to them. I guess my question is where will that expertise come in at later later points in the education from specialists, from um, teachers who will be able to sort of handhold them through those, or will that be entirely student led? It will be a case of them putting their hands up and saying, you know, we haven't got this technology in school, I need it to be able to do what I want to do. That's what I'm trying to understand.
2: Anyone who has access to a screen can be part of the green school community um receiving giving sharing um and what i mean by that is that i think we have to get away from the idea of we, we only have certain number of teachers on the ground just look at our parental body already mm. and we with our opening parents you know we've looked at who wants to volunteer for what and in one or two cases you know we have world class world-class expertise which can come to school anytime yeah we have world-class expertise in every continent in the world and if someone feels aligned to us they can appear on a screen and they can help immediately so we want to tap into all of that. That's the faculty as, our, you know, as I see Green School going forward. Yeah. So I, I just don't see any issues. I mean, I'd, I'd extend it. You know, if somebody came here tomorrow and said, look, I want to learn uh, ancient Greek. Why not? There's no reason why you can't learn ancient Greek and go and study in an ancient university if that's what you want to do mm-hmm. um, in Green School New Zealand. Um, so it isn't just about technology per se. I think it's about almost any subject and just rethinking what great pedagogy looks like. What you mustn't do here though, is lose that sense of community and human interaction that will make up your day-to-day life.
1: A distinction in the question was between having a really good childhood and then the world of work. I don't think there is a distinction and I don't think they're two different things. I think the greatest need, if you want to have a rich and fulfilling life full of like joy and thriving with purpose, is what Kurt Hahn would describe as finding your grand passion, whether that worked or not, is that sort of entrepreneurial sense of I can make change in the world and I can just make it happen. And I think our programme is designed for that. And if it didn't churn out a lot of entrepreneurs, many of whom may go to university Mm -hmm. (laughs) on their entrepreneurial journey, some of whom might not, but who start businesses, create things, create sustainable enterprises, I would be very surprised because it's so much written into the DNA of Bali and it's so much written into our, you know, our founders and community members here. You know, of, of the people who have come here, one of them is a professor of entrepreneurship in the UK who's you know, flown here to be at this school. Our founders are entrepreneurs. Our community is full of entrepreneurs. So I think the idea that there's a distinction between having a childhood in which you thrive with purpose and learn to take ownership of your learning, take action and impact in the world... And that somehow that's distinct from work. It's not training yourself into a narrow niche and then ask someone else to give you a job if you're lucky. Mm
0: -hmm. It's
1: just that's just not the way the future of work particularly looks. I think Mm -hmm. I think more the idea of how can I create value? What can I start? What can I do myself? Uh, Is the more than one thing I want to be good at and to be doing with my life, I think is much more like the future of work. And I think of, you know, sort of, I worked with Sky School and Polly and Mir, who founded Sky School, that that's their job. and yeah. Obviously.
0: Me is someone I'll be talking to in a couple of weeks, okay. actually. But... So there you go. Yeah. So,
1: you know, that, that was their job of, you know, you have a strong sense of purpose, you see something he's doing in the world, you do it regardless of anyone else's permission or a salary or a job, and eventually you'll work out how you can live while doing that. Mm-hmm. And that becomes your job because you've made it. And I, I think... A childhood in which you learn to really own your passions, have agency, take action in the world, bring other people with you, create opportunities. It's the most fantastic preparation for a fulfilling life.
0: For our 21st century world <laughs> and, of careers as yes. well. Because as we yeah. know, jobs and are going to change so rapidly yeah. and people are going to be retraining all the time. So, yeah.
1: And it might not be a job, it might be you know, a career that you create rather than a job someone gives you.
0: So in this context, then you mentioned someone already mentioned tall poppy syndrome. I think it was, I think it was you actually. How does that overlap with what you're experiencing in terms of local culture, community, industry here? Do people get that when you're explaining what Green School does? Do you think that's that's some work that will be needed in order to explain that? Yeah, maybe we're not necessarily going to create people who fit into the sectors that are already in this environment but we are part of a change that's happening here in Taranaki.
1: New Zealand also has I'm getting to know the culture from a very starting point (laughs) you know I've read quite a few books before I came here and I'm slowly getting to know it's got I think a deep suspicion towards anything that looks pompous or hypocritical good so should it I think it's also got a very strong streak of kind of the Edmund Hillary model of rugged individualism and going out there and doing your best and trying hard and working hard. Yeah. And I think if people understand that the Green School is more at the Edmund Hillary end than it is at the pretentious end, yeah. then they might suddenly think, actually, this is, fant- <laughs> this is us. <laughs> this Pioneer is what we do. Self-sustaining school, we're not yeah. pretentious. We're not arrogant. We're kind of straightforward people, but we're willing to work really hard in stuff we believe in.
0: Mm.
1: And then I think those, that understanding might come
0: That's a great answer. Yeah, I think I think that's that's key, actually, kind of getting on board with the rugged individualist nature of a country makes a lot of sense.
2: We've already talked about the world of work changing and we've talked about how Green School might approach that. We haven't talked about the great looming macro issue, which is the state of the world, um, its physical state um, and how that is impacting upon people, upon places, upon cultures. I think it's imperative regardless of how quickly you think climate change is taking place and the extent to which you think humans are responsible for that. So perhaps if we just park all that for a moment, because I know people have different views about the speed and why, I think it's absolutely essential that we produce people who can communicate with people who see differently to them. Because one of my huge issues with many movements who are fighting on behalf of a better world is that it's bubble speaking to bubble, if that metaphor isn't too crass. Mm. How do you speak to entire nations, entire cultures, who are either too poor or conditioned in a certain way so that they're not thinking about climate change at all? And those people number millions, if not billions. So one of the things I'm desperate to do at Green School New Zealand is to remind people that you have to engage in sensible arguments, and this is a world now where even science seems to be taking binary positions. Mm. We seem to have lost the ability to talk to one another meaningfully, and when science collapses like that, I get really worried because I am increasingly loathing the binary nature of the arguments.
0: So teaching Maori culture, for example, making sure that that's embedded into the, into the learning practices here. What form will that take? How will it look? Who's delivering that? And, and you know, how are you making sure that that it is coming from a place of realness and not something that feels like it's a, an add-on?
2: I think Stuart's actually, um, I think your Maori's better than mine, so I'm gonna <laughs> let you answer that. I'll come I in if you'd
1: like. <laughs> no, I think we have two teachers. Of sort of our sort of tenish staff to our Maori and are teaching us both as staff during orientation and now teaching the learners sort of language and culture around Maori history, Maori language. I think it's an enormous the complex and interesting thing and and the great privilege is I think the Maori communities around us want to help us see us as aligned so fire martyr from Perry hacker who i've made friends with <laughs> um who is such you know just an incredibly powerful female leader mm-hmm. which i think is also really important as a role model in our community of like what female leadership could look like and how powerful it can be and sitting down with her she was absolutely lovely and she automatically started telling me you know the history of my community and which means us you know she helps us to understand the significance of this area in mm-hmm. this land mm-hmm. and she said in the Marae where she lives, she said she sees great synergies between the Green School and the Marae in terms of a desire to be sustainable, a desire to sort of steward and look after the land. Right. And she sees great potential there and wants us. I mean, she has lovely, she said, you know, if the students are learning today, mm-hmm. bring them to the marae and I've shown how to make eel baskets at the same time as learning today, which I think is it's an incredible opportunity to build understanding and capacity around that.
0: I imagine that will be something that will grow and will become more important to families from the local area as you are finding those students and and welcoming them into the family. To, To be able to show those connections between where you are, this place which has been chosen for its obviously very special, powerful feeling when you walk on site, but just for the history. And the, the, the fact that we are here surrounded by hundreds of years of history, which has, has been covered over in some storytelling. Oh. And um...
2: If I may just add one or two things here. Um, one was an inspirational moment I had when I was describing our curriculum, which is a bespoke curriculum at Green School, to a local Maori politician. And I gave a quick five minute elevator pitch and he was almost tearful. And he pointed out that this was the May, or this was very similar to the way the Maoris had brought up their own children for centuries. It was multi-age. It was seeing what we would now call core subjects folded into meaningful experiences, which in their case might've been hunting, fishing, whatever it might've been. And in our case will be the voyages that that Stuart's already described to you. And we hadn't consciously gone out to do that, but there he was. And that, that was an incredibly powerful moment for me. I think one of the most important things about the teaching of indigenous culture and language is that we want every green school to approach this in more or less the same way. And that is as a portal from local to global. So in teaching tereo, in understanding Maori culture, when you move to another green school or somewhere else in the world, we hope that that acts as a door so you can better understand where you are. Imagine the same thing in green school, Mexico. Imagine the same thing in green school, South Africa. In terms of its details, it will look very different but in terms of its concepts, it will look the same. So for me, that's the single most significant thing mm. about working with and learning from indigenous cultures.
0: Got it, okay. And do you foresee movement between the schools? Is that, because I understand you've had families who've come here from Bali, their huge waiting list as it is at the moment. Do you foresee that kind of movement?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there is an overarching body, Green School International, and there will, of course, be points of commonality between the schools that are, are the bedrock, some things that simply cannot change from one green school to another. But I go back to that local to global aspect. If you visit any green school, it should be recognisably from the second you enter a green school, mm. but going back to what I've just said, you should then see something that's, I'm gonna use that phrase ruthlessly relevant again, that's relevant to the local situation of mm-hmm. that school. So God forbid they should ever all be identical schools, that, that must not happen.
0: Yeah. From the UWC backgrounds that you both have, what have you brought in in terms of mission and vision that is obviously from UWC and what is uniquely Green School's own?
2: There's a lot from UWC. I mean, you you, you can't lose it. I love UWC. I could very happily be a part of the movement and part of my heart will always be there. UWC was really set up as a post-Cold War organisation to deal with problems that had arisen after the Second World War. You look at the UWC scholarship program, it's an amazing program. You can see it's a response to a particular geopolitical situation. Green school is very much a 21st century response to a 21st century issue. It's not to say one is better than the other. I mean, in some ways you're comparing, I don't know, Tuesday with a box of eggs. Um, They can be very different. So in terms of values, I think very little. We use something called I Respect Values at Green School. I look at the values of UWC and the individual schools within the movement, very, very similar. Look, if, uh, I'll get into trouble for saying this, but I'll say it anyway. I think if UWC was weak in an area, it was probably sustainability and regeneration, very strong on economic, so socioeconomic diversity, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, incredible. And if green school is weak at the moment, guess what? It's where UWC is strong. Mm. So I'd love to think that the movements could themselves come together and work together, but that each individual movement could make itself strong where it is currently weak.
0: For teachers, maybe, maybe thinking about the kind of, you know, as you grow and teachers that you'd like to attract, um, families that you'd like to attract, messages that you have to parents.
1: Well,
2: perhaps I have a message for teachers, which is to say that at the moment, you know, that cliche of a blank piece of paper. What's incredibly exciting about this place now is that if it goes wrong, it's entirely our fault, 100% our fault, laid at our feet, we have to own it. Mm. But if it goes right, um, and it will, you will be part of something quite revolutionary in the most wonderful sense of the world. So the sense of excitement, the sense of expectancy and the freedom to create here at Mm. the moment, probably unequalled. I can think of no other school environment where you're going to have the kind of freedom you will do here, to be brilliant, to be your brilliant self.
0: Where do you see growth happening in terms of the kind of teacher that will find you or that will be required as your student body grows here?
1: In a sense, similar to in the cliche, in order to play jazz and break all the rules, you need to know those rules backwards. I think we need teachers who are incredibly competent and knowledgeable about learning and er- different areas of learning but who are also brilliant imaginative innovators and highly empathetic about the nature of childhood and I think that's a high bar but mm. I think that's what we're looking for that's what we're seeking to build within ourselves and our staff and build from there really.
0: presumably yeah. they need to have a full, fully charged sense of adventure they need to be able to work in the outdoors and get their hands dirty and You know, take students out on expeditions, take them to to the beach. What what else would you hope from them?
2: I'm going to add a word to that. And for for parents as well, which is resilience. You know, those people who say, oh, green school must be easy. As I said before, people sitting in fields, whatever they imagine might be going on here. Green school isn't easy. It's hard. It's challenging. And we are going to have to prove ourselves. And I would also add to that that there will be some students here who want to go to the top universities in the world when they leave. So, the teachers at the, the top end of the school, well, throughout the school, need to make sure that they can deliver on that as well. There is a side of green school that, that means graft, mm. that means hard work. So, they've got to be prepared for that too. Can we just finish yeah. on fun yeah, for a moment? Let's Enjoy. Do that. Yeah. Um, do what know? do you
0: like most about your time here so far, maybe? And
2: okay, that, that's easy. That's <laughs> easy. So, we, we only have 10 teachers, we're tiny. Yeah. Okay, I've come from 550 full time teachers to 10. And we stood up on Friday at our opening party. And we sang in Te Reo, and only two of the teachers are married, so eight people were singing in a language other than their own. And we sang in harmony. I think we blew the audience's mm-hmm. mind, if I say so myself. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't understand like Freddie Mercury here at Wembley, but I think it was pretty good. And we did it with smiles on our faces. Nobody was self-conscious. Nobody was looking the other way or didn't want to play a part in it. There is something so spontaneously joyful about this school at the moment that I find it difficult to put into words, and it was best described in that song.
0: What was the song, if I may ask, that you were singing?
1: What's it called? Wakataka Te Ho.
0: Excellent, excellent pronunciation. That's I can right. tell you what
1: it means as well. Tell cease, us what it means. Cease the Wind. So it's a song or writer about sort of well being and calm, and letting calm winds come.
0: That's a really nice place for us to finish, I think. If that was the goal of of what Green School can do for your learners, then Mm. I think you've summarised that quite nicely.
2: Now, in my defence, I missed all the rehearsals (laughs) for the songs. I only came in at the last minute, so I I I knew the words, but I can't remember what it was called.
0: (laughs) But are you having fun here? It seems like you are, I think... I get the sense that you're having a lot of, uh, you know, obviously setting up a school is a massive, massive ordeal. But you, you, it...
2: you can't not. I mean, you'd you'd have gone mad. At this. <laughs> like I said, it was a field when I came in March. I was still at UWC. I didn't leave UWC till June, July. Um, but I stood there less than a year ago. There was nothing. Yeah. Just cows. Yeah. Oh no! What have I done? And. Um... <laughs> And then my favourite my favorite moment so far, I wish I had the phone so I could show you the picture. So two schools ago when, when I left as head after 10 years, you get your portrait painted. Hmm. So you put your academic gown on and stuff and I've got the Oxford colours and I have to hold a book and put my head up and they paint the picture and it goes in this ancient chapel. And about five weeks ago, um, I was stood by the green school sign on the road. I had a hat, just growing this because I couldn't be bothered shaving and I'd keep it short now. I thought I looked like George Clooney. I looked like Uncle Remus. I decided, been in my, and um, someone took my picture, and I was just leaning on it, uh, sunglasses, shorts, and I sent it home, and it went sort of viral amongst my friends. I once sent back the picture from Bromsgrove with me in full academic regalia, yeah. the portrait in the chapel, and put that one next to it. It's only seven years between them, and underneath just said, "What happened?"
1: <laughs> and I thought, "Yes, I've arrived." <laughs> Opening
0: the, you're opening a door there for someone else.
1: <laughs> no, I think. So. I mean, I think Green School is trying to do childhood properly, and I think schools talk about it and they make excuses and they're bogged down by bureaucratic thinking, even if it's not bureaucracy. So I think there's something profoundly good about what people are trying to do, and profoundly brave. But I think that's the entrepreneurial thing. Our fans are entrepreneurs. They're mm. brave. Mm. Like they're brave by nature, and I think. There's a phrase that went through my head a few times when I visited in October, actually, and then it's gone through my head a lot even now, which is kind of, you don't know you're ill until you're well.
0: Maybe that would be the title. Mm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. The it's great sorry. thing is I've discovered as you get old as well, You know, however hard you try to avoid it when you're younger, you've always got one eye on posterity or even your own career. When you give, oh my God, am I going to make a stick? It's great because when you get to my age, you couldn't care less all you yeah. care about is making the school as wonderful as it can be and giving yeah. the young people their experience so I found it I've actually found getting older so liberating when talking to people because there's just no point making stuff up mm. Um yeah. yeah. there's as yeah. it is If people don't like it they don't like it and, yeah. and I, I find that great yeah. so it's great
0: yeah well may it be very successful for you both I really think you know you, you're cottoned onto something which the world needs in a massive way, and, and I'm sure you will only become a hub of training and learning for other, other schools. But...
2: Oh, well, thank you. Let's hope we can live up to our own hype.
0: <laughs> 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 what really stuck with me after this interview was the idea of trying to do childhood properly. Editing this during the coronavirus lockdown, it seems totally fitting that Stuart was able to focus in on the phrase, you don't know you're ill until you're well. Schools are having to undergo unprecedented change as we speak right now all over the world and online learning is becoming a necessity, major exams have been cancelled and teachers and learners are in real anxious flux. However, schools like Green School that have an eye on the well-being of students not only seem to be thinking about preparing their young people better for the changing nature of the external environment and the world of work, but they're also going to be able to build resilience and adaptability in those same learners. After all, if your school has co-created your learning with you every step of the way, you might just end up better prepared for those swings and arrows that come along with life. Join me for the next episode of the Piloted podcast, where I'll be talking to Claire and David Price, OBE, as they take project-based learning to Australia. I'll be talking to them about what we've been doing right and wrong in 21st century education. You can stay up to date on Piloted by following us on Instagram and Facebook at the piloted podcast or you can say hi on twitter just at the piloted thanks for tuning in